I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. My guest today is Stephen Wong. Being a millennial, Stephen says his narrative was shaped by the 2009 recession. Growing up, he had a vision for his future, but he had to put that aside and work in a career that he did not find meaningful. Stephen graduated from Babson College in 2009 in the midst of the recession. With a skill set that was still in demand during the recession, Stephen started his career as an actuary. But he wanted work that had meaning for him. So he left after a few years to pursue meaningful work. Stephen will share with us how he found his way out of a job in Hartford, Connecticut and into Facebook, where he had the autonomy to create a new practice. From Facebook, he pursued a path filled with sidesteps and backsteps and jumps forward that ultimately landed him in a role he has today, where he has a deep sense of meaning and purpose in his life. So if you are a millennial and you're frustrated with your role and looking for an inspired next step, or maybe you're approaching your mid-30s or early 40s and you're worried you won't find your purpose, or you are conflicted about how to engage millennials at work, you won't want to miss this show. Stephen shares how his most important lesson, that is the little lessons we take away from the obstacles in life, often lead us to our most passionate, an impactful next chapter. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hi, Cinder. How are you? Oh my gosh, I'm really great. It's so great to talk to you. Do you remember the first time we met? Uh, I believe you had just joined Square and you were taking us around. You were so proud taking us around the workplace. And then you, um, you gave me this two-page list of all the things you wanted to accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> I know it was, I looked at it and as a HR person, I'm like, whoa, I want you on my team. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is like, I had just started and I was like a one person team. So like the, the thought that I would accomplish all of these things while like implementing Workday is like pretty comical. I still have that piece of paper that you gave me. No way. Oh, my oh I do. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I just can't believe it. Did you graduated from college in 2009? That's right. Yep, that's right. And so you said my narrative was shaped by the recession. So tell us a little bit about what that was like as you were going through college and watching the stock market and the whole market tank. Well, it's funny because I went, I decided to study abroad at the last minute, my senior year. So the fall semester of my senior year and in my study abroad program, I was on a boat, literally circumnavigating the globe, making stops in different countries. I didn't have internet access. I wasn't watching TV. There was no TVs on the boat. So I had no idea that this recession had started. And then when I got back to land, uh, was December of 2008, 
was like, all right, time to go start looking for a job. And, you know, <laughs> six months ago, I had three job offers. By the time that I got my bearings, I had no job offers and I was getting rejection letters within hours of applying. You'd apply for this, you know, job and boop, they, you know, you get this rejection letter and you're like, oh, this is strange because I wow. used to get offers to interview. <laughs> this is very different. And then it dawned on me that things are not the same. Boy, it happened that fast because you were on that boat just for a semester, weren't you? Yeah, about three and a yeah. half months. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so fast. Well, the boat sounds fascinating. It was incredible. Um, yeah, you're on a boat, you're traveling with a bunch of um, American students. Um, you know, I think every abroad experience is what you make of it. Some people were not there to learn. They were there to party. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it was really what you made of it. And I learned a lot about myself that, that trip. I did study. I did learn a bunch of stuff. But you really learn more about yourself. I think that's what study abroad is kind of about. So I had an internship before I went abroad in the actuarial world, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I even kind of like, I, I didn't get fired. I kind of got pushed out in the last week because they could, they could tell that I did not care. I was so disengaged. I couldn't keep my eyes open until five o'clock every day. And when I graduated, or you know, when I came back from my trip, the last thing I thought I was going to do was do that job again. And yet I did it for two and a half more years because that was the only job I could get. And was that up in um, Connecticut? Yeah, Hartford, Connecticut, the insurance capital of the world. Mm -hmm. I call it the armpit of New England. <laughs> um, but, yeah. I couldn't agree more, actually. Sorry, Hartford. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I lived there for a couple of years and um, it's unfortunately it was uh, going downhill. But I yeah. think it'll probably it'll probably turn around because it really is a beautiful state. Yeah, it's called New England's rising star. That's how they advertise themselves. So they admit that they're not a star, oh. but they're a rising star. They're Somehow I cannot see you in Hartford, Connecticut as an actuary. Yeah, well, you know, that was one, that was, that was kind of the, the challenge in that it didn't feel like a challenge in a traditional sense. So in comparison to my friends and my peers, I was one of the lucky ones. I had a high paying job while many college graduates were moving back home with their parents. Yeah, that's true. I had yeah. friends, I was healthy. There was nothing to complain about other than the fact that I was living in, in Hartford, but I didn't have a big challenge, Cinder. If I complained, wouldn't I sound like an entitled millennial brat? Yes. Oh, yeah. That that is so true. Now, what? Why did you go into uh, finance in the beginning? I don't know. I was good at math, and I think my mom was an accountant, and mm -hmm. she was just pushing me to do what I was good at, which was finance and math and this actuarial thing, which was kind of a had a niche. It was a good career. That's what I think she wanted for me, and when you are that age, you are trying to do things that will appease your parents. And What is the story then from how you got from Hartford, Connecticut to San Francisco, which actually was my journey too. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, I, I was thinking back on it and I didn't really find my job to be that meaningful at all in Hartford. And I don't know what the catalyst was. I don't think there was a specific catalyst, but 
I wasn't experiencing joy every day. Mm -hmm. And today, now, I believe that we all deserve to experience like immense happiness in our life and pride at work. Not all the time, but moments of joy daily at a minimum weekly. While I thought that I had it all, I, I didn't. And I was kind of upset that I wasn't happy with what I had. So I just, I wanted a, a new adventure. I wanted a job and a life where I had meaning. And just for context, as an actuary, my specialty was accidental death and dismemberment. So, oh dear, <laughs> just the title gives me a noise. <laughs> and it's not like I was helping these people. It's like I was calculating what their payout would be or how much you know reserves need to hold. And like it, it was not. There was nothing meaningful about that career for me. So why Facebook? Facebook was very was just a lucky thing that happened to me. I mean, I didn't even know I, well, I wanted to work at Facebook or I wanted to work in a different career. All I knew was that I wanted to work in a different career. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was, it was going to be HR. In fact, HR was probably the last thing I thought I would end up in. I just started applying randomly and then somehow someone reached out to me at Google for a job in compensation because um, actuarial skills transfer, you know, I guess around there. Um, I didn't get that job, but I was like, wow, if I could work at Google, I could probably work at Facebook. So I applied at Facebook to be a compensation analyst. Um, and back at, back in the, back in the day, if you wanted a job at Facebook, you just applied via Facebook. There was like a, a oh, no job or something like that. Yeah. It's real. It's wild. And then the job that you eventually got at Facebook, what you were the first, um, person who did data analytics. Yeah, I was the first HR analyst. So um, I didn't get the compensation job, but I remember when I was interviewing, oh, it was intense. You had to write, um, you had to do an Excel test. You had to write, what ended up for me being a 30 page paper on the valuation of Facebook. I think I had 16 interviews. They flew me out twice from Connecticut. And so you get this far, you don't get the job, but obviously they found something in me. And they knew that Google was doing HR analytics, but um, Mm -hmm. they knew that they should be doing it, but (laughs) that's pretty much all they knew. So um, I was able to kind of position my experience as like, oh, I could do that. I can predict, you know, when people will die, I can probably predict when people will leave your company. It's not that hard. The math is the same. You're a smoker or you're a non-smoker or you're a salesperson or you're an engineer, right? Just change the variables. It's not quite that easy, but they bought it and that was my job. They were doing an employee engagement survey. So that's, that was the data you used, isn't it? Yeah. So I was trying to build this uh, predictive attrition model and looking at, okay, what was your commute time? If your commute time was really high, maybe you were more likely to leave. Or, um, you know, maybe if you had lots of different managers in a short period of time, maybe that would cause you to leave. It turns out you could just ask them on an employee survey and millennials would just tell you the truth, whether they're going to leave or not. I explained like 70% of the variance of the model. So my focus since that realization has been on employee surveys. They're an incredible, powerfully tool to be a force of organizational change, but also to predict events. How long did you stay at Facebook? About two and a half years. And yeah. what did you like most about it? Well, that was when we were nice and small and 
I had never been given that much autonomy um, or control to do anything. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. oh, what do you want to work on? Uh, I want to build an employee engagement tool from scratch. I want to build diversity and inclusion models. I want to um, build L&D training. I, you know, they, they kind of let me do anything and everything because it all had to be done. Here you are studying people who were leaving. Why did you decide to leave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of push and pull. Um, my team was evolving um, a lot. So actually my entire team kind of left at the same time. Um, and as the needs of Facebook kind of changed and evolved, I didn't really see how my skills and passion fit into the direction of where the people analytics team was going. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to try starting my own business. So I just thought it was time for me to just spread my wings and, and do it. I have a bias for action. So, you know, I left Connecticut like, well, we'll just see where we go. And that's kind of how I left Facebook too. Like, we'll just see. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you started your own business when you left Facebook? Yeah, a little, a little blip in my uh, career that I don't talk about. I was, um, <laughs> I was working with a friend and we built an app that was kind of like an on-demand rave service. So you would pick a place and what kind of DJ you wanted, if you wanted um, like lasers or lights or alcohol or fog machines or whatever, and we would just show up and throw a party whether that was an abandoned Uruguayan embassy or federal land, didn't matter. We'd show up with bolt cutters and break into wherever you wanted to throw a party. Not a sustainable business model. I would not, <laughs> <laughs> not advise it. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. I uh, met a lot of great people. I met um, someone who I ended up dating for a few years. There was an adventure that, uh, I'm very grateful that I got through it without getting caught. <laughs> <laughs> so this wasn't a game. You were literally breaking into places to have a party? Yeah, wherever the customer needed us to go. Yeah. And, and that was the cool thing is we got to charge a premium for doing that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> that is too funny. Looking back on it now, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But I only did that for a few months before I realized you know, there's actually, there's actually not a lot of money in events. If you don't own the venue, yeah, events is a really hard model. I still throw events, but um, I throw them in venues. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That's too funny. And did you share this um, adventure with your mother? <laughs> I don't think she knows. Oh, no, 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 she did. I mean, she doesn't know about all the illegal stuff, but <laughs> she knows I was trying to get something off, off the ground and running. Um, yeah, it, it, it kind of started as like, you know, when you, when you work at Facebook, you get all these Facebook ad credits. So you mm -hmm. can spend the ad credits however you want. So we built the app on Christmas Day because my friend was Jewish and he wasn't doing anything. And then I just <laughs> blasted it on Facebook with all this free ad credits and people started responding. So we figured, okay, well, let's just start throwing parties. I love the way you think. <laughs> I would have never thought of that. And just a couple of short years from the sitting at a desk in Hartford, Connecticut to breaking into places. I know. Gosh, that's, that's the San Francisco effect for sure. So then you wound up at Square. How, is Square the next place you went? Yep. Square was next. In tech, it's pretty incestuous. So a lot of the Facebook people left for the next darling tech company, which was Square. Um, so they kind of told me, Hey, you can do the same thing and build it all up from scratch here at Square. And, uh, you were there for about a year and then you went to Culture Amp. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. Wonderful company. I, I just love the name and the logo and DDA, who's the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, and just your whole concept about people geeks and culture first companies. Say a little bit about you know, what your mission is at CultureAmp and importantly, how you're aligned with the mission of your company. The mission of CultureAmp is to empower companies to use employee feedback um, to create organizations where people can succeed. We started out as the first real-time employee feedback and survey company. I mean, we have tons of competitors now, but back then we were just really getting people to, companies to harness the power of employee feedback. It's funny how we talk at CultureAmp. You can call this the Kool-Aid, but all of, we, my life has gotten better because I, I know how to give and receive feedback better. I help companies use the feedback from their companies every day and I'm just so much more attuned to how I give and receive feedback to my family and my friends and my, um, my partner. And it's really just made me a better person. Um, my role is the head of diversity and inclusion. So uh, we have an inclusion survey that nearly 100 companies have used to date. And it really starts to tackle how do different groups feel and experience the culture. One thing I learned at Facebook is that your culture can be technically the same for everyone in that people have a singular understanding of the culture, but the culture can be felt differently by men and women and single parents and veterans and different groups. Yeah, that, that's what I, I found so intriguing. When I looked at a, a couple of the links that you sent me, uh, one on the presentation of the um, diversity and inclusion survey, and you were talking about the different aspects of diversity. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that, um, that people are diverse. I think our current definition of diversity, the way that a lot of people think about diversity is around race and gender, sometimes age, sometimes um, ability. But for a lot of people that I uh, talk to and work with, they don't feel that diversity includes them. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that they also have a voice in the conversation. A lot of people are, um, a lot of straight white men, for example, don't think that diversity includes them or that they have a voice. I'm trying to broaden the definition of diversity to go past race and gender, to talk about sexual orientation, um, ability, um, what kind of socioeconomic status you come from. Um, are you a parent? Are you a caregiver? age, all sorts of things. Diversity includes all sorts of people. And even if you are someone with all these compound privileges, you too get to have a voice. In fact, it's probably you have more status and power than other people. So we need you to be a, to play a part in the diversity conversation. Mm, that's a good way to look at it. And your survey, I don't want to gloss over this because you're really the first person to look at the data and say, wait a minute, I think we're overlooking or we're oversimplifying what diversity means or how people feel about whether or not they're included in the conversation in the workplace. So you presented a, a proposal to CultureAmp that you wanted to look more deeply into this and it eventually wound up into your creating this survey. Yeah, it was actually, um, she's no longer at CultureAmp, but her name was Bronwyn Clune. She was um, the person who was always banging the drum at Culture Ramp, we need to do more around diversity and inclusion. 
And I had just started as like, oh, I'll help out. <laughs> ah. So, um, you know, we built this survey in 2015 and there were no diversity and inclusion um, like templates or surveys that we could find back then. So we thought we should be the first. What have companies done based on the results they've found in their survey? All sorts of stuff. It kind of depends what they find. I'd say nine out of 10 companies find that they have statistically meaningful differences between men and women or, you know, any kind of dominant and minority group. Mm -hmm. um, very few companies are inclusive in every sense. So when you've identified um, what, where your kind of disparities may exist in your culture, but you do, you do, you take different actions. Some people find that it's a system and process that's really leading to biased or discriminatory, discriminatory outcomes. Mm -hmm. Some people find it's a few or maybe one leader that is, you know, that their influence is wreaking havoc on your ability to create an inclusive organization. Some companies use it to kind of decide on what their strategy should be. Other people use it to evaluate an existing strategy and saying, okay, what's working, what's not. You know, it's a, it's a customizable template. So you can curate the items based on the stuff that you want to know and kind of the outcomes you're looking to achieve. You know, I've read a lot of studies that show that the most um, effective teams are the ones where they um, include everyone in the, in the conversation. So yeah. for example, at meetings, that there's equal time for each person at the meeting. Is that what you mean by inclusion? Yeah, that's one of them. You know, we have an action framework that we're building for the inclusion survey. So let's say you want to work on team diversity. You might click on that and there's a few things that pop up. One of them is called around the room. So when you're introducing a new concept, everyone goes around the room and gets 30 seconds or you know, a minute to state their opinion or thoughts on it and everyone else has to listen. Another tactic is called devil's advocate. So that's when everyone agrees, one person you know, gets picked randomly and then they're the devil's advocate and they have to advocate for a different outcome or a different decision. Even if they don't believe that, they have to open up the possibility that it's okay to have a contrary opinion. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of little inclusive meeting hacks and nudges and things that you can do to create more inclusive um, outcomes. Oh, interesting. I've noticed too that there are several leadership certificate programs at universities. So if you were going to create a kind of curriculum at a company, what would that look like? Oh yeah, there's all sorts of inclusionary leadership, kind of like 360s and, and tools and things that I've seen. I would want the program to, to get people to figure out why do they care about inclusion. I've noticed that it differs for different people and that's totally fine in my opinion. I think some people want to do it because they've felt exclusion in the past and that's their motivation for not wanting others to feel that way. And I've seen other people care about it because like it leads to better business outcomes, you know, like all those McKinsey studies and or they know about stereotype threat and they want to reduce that in their organization. Whatever it is, I think that if you're going to embark on this journey to becoming an inclusionary leader, you have to figure out why do you care? And, um, and don't forget that because it gets exhausting. It, it's not easy to be inclusive sometimes. 
Mm. So knowing why you care, I mean, I know that's not really curriculum, right? But that's like, you got to figure that out first. Yeah, because you're going to get a lot of resistance, I think. I recommended to somebody the other day who was um, having difficulty with turnover on our team. And I said, well, describe for me your hiring process. And she said, well, I, I go out and I look for a bunch of resumes and I hire the one that I think is going to be the best one. When that person comes in, they're not always received in um, a favorable light. So I suggested to her, you know, why don't um, you try having a team of people <laughs> and do team recruiting? Probably not to the extreme that Facebook does, but you know, at least a few, at least a few of the people who would be an internal and and their key collaborators, if you will, internally. And so she thought that was a great idea and went out and went to her key collaborators and said that she was going to start with this next hire that was in the works and would they, you know, carve out some time to meet with this person. And the person did not like the idea at all. Really? Yeah. No. He said, no, that's a bad idea. You should do the hiring. It's your responsibility. Taking a company and really impacting its culture that it's also a change that um, that you need the stakeholder buy-in before you really try any of these. Otherwise they could backfire. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've had some people come up to me now that I'm in my role and say, how do I get my diversity and inclusion function started if I have a leader that doesn't care? There you go. And man, that's a hard one because if, if you want my honest answer, I just say, leave, don't bother. Yeah. You know, like if, if you have to convince someone why um, diversity and inclusion is important, that's an uphill battle that this person doesn't deserve your talent. That being said, I have to acknowledge in order to be able to just walk away from a job like that, you have to have quite a bit of privilege to just be able to just pick up and leave and, and know you're going to find a job somewhere else. So I need to think of a better answer for people that have a family to feed or don't have the geographic mobility that, that I have at my disposal, right? And I yeah. just, I don't envy that person that has to convince someone why diversity and inclusion makes sense. Yeah, having a passion, knowing why you're doing what you're doing and seeing that alignment to some kind of impact, which I know is important to so many millennials. Help us understand the profile of a millennial and what really inspires them to be their best self at work every day? Well, what we do know is that millennials are a little bit disengaged, more disengaged than um, people in different generations. I'm trying to break that down a little bit further and say, well, there could be some confounding variable. It could be that older employees are more in leadership positions and it's not age, it's really the position in the company. But you can't ignore that millennials are more disengaged than other generations. And that's across all companies, all technologies. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and not to say that it happens at every company, but when you collect all the data from all companies, millennials are less engaged. I was teaching a class at Berkeley called The Pursuit of Meaningful Work. I was just a guest lecture. Um, and the professor, uh, Mike Katz, has this amazing course on pursuing meaningful work. So the first half of the, the kind of curriculum is how do you define what meaning is for you? And the second half of the class is how do companies 
create meaningful work opportunities for their employees. So I was talking to the second half, but he was telling me that he follows people after they take the course and fo does follow-up surveys and half of the students still report not having or finding or seeking meaningful work. And it boggles his mind and it boggles my mind too. You went through the course. How do you not, how do you not pursue meaningful work? I think for me, what was holding me back from finding meaningful work was really fear, right? I felt like if I left my actuarial career, I would be seen as a failure. I was fearful that I would not be successful in whatever career I landed. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that I was going to disappoint a bunch of people in my life. My parents who helped me get this far. Uh, one of my mentors was the first ever chief risk officer. These are people that developed my skills so that I can get this job. And I was afraid of leaving my amazing friends in Connecticut. You know, there's a lot of things that, that I was afraid of. If you grew up with the recession being a part of your life or impacting your life, mm -hmm. you don't have the same security that um, other people did. So maybe our generation is a little bit more fearful. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really good point. I do know a lot of millennials, including my own two children, who do have those same fears. They've changed jobs a few times and they wonder, will I ever find anything that satisfies me? Yeah, it's hard. You have to, you have to be lucky to find meaningful work. That's how it feels sometimes. It does. Education is such a privilege for people. It's become so expensive. Mm -hmm. that not everyone has that opportunity or seizes that opportunity to take on a lot of debt yes, and, um, and go to college. And that's really, it was in college, even though I don't do anything remotely related to marine biology anymore as a profession. I loved it. So at least I had that experience of trying different kinds of functions and knowing what I liked and knowing what I don't like. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who don't go to college or have that experience, how do they know what they like? Yeah. And unfortunately, it's really uh, the access to education and those opportunities aren't, it's not equally distributed. So I was doing some research around socioeconomic status. 74% of people that attend the top ranked university, like the 100 top ranked universities and colleges in the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, 74% of them come from the top income quartile and only 3% come from the bottom income quartile. So access to education um, kind of reinforces some of those, I guess, expressive behaviors that you need to be successful in like a white collar, you know, industry. And our social class divide is growing in America because access to education is not being distributed fairly. Do millennials share their fear that they have about not having meaningful work with each other? Yeah, maybe some more than others. Depends on the person. I think some people are more willing to be vulnerable than others. That's something that I didn't have growing up. I was always told to be tough and resilient and stoic. And I wasn't able to share 
my feelings with my parents. They didn't understand why I was leaving the actuarial career, which I'd passed all these exams and, you know, I was, I was, had this high paying job and they didn't know what Facebook was because this was, you know, before Facebook was open to everyone. So they're like, your face, what book, what? <laughs> um, and also as an adolescent, you know, you spend so much time managing how others perceive you that you don't want to be seen as weak or vulnerable. Right. Growing up gay, my brain was hyper vigilant to picking up on little cues. Can I be myself here? What will people think of me? Can I say that? Can I wear that? And that's not something that my, it took years to my brain to turn off that um, mechanism that was using up all my cognitive resources. So what recommendations do you have for people listening today? And I, I don't you know, want to make generalities about millennials or say that it's only millennials who don't have a sense of meaning and purpose in their life, but it really does span every single age mm-hmm. group. What advice would you give people? What's one thing you've learned? One thing. <laughs> or um, 10 things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, luckily... I, I've learned that I don't have to do anything. I used to catch myself saying, well, I have to do this or I have to do this. I can't do this because I have to do X, Y, Z. As long as you have a good head on your shoulders, everything that you do is really a choice, not an obligation. I don't have to go to work today. I don't have to brush my teeth. (laughs) I choose to do those things. If you have a safety net, like no one's going to let me starve, right? That's a privilege. I've got to acknowledge that. But if you have that privilege, know that you deserve to be happy and you could, you know, the things that are in your control, you can choose to do them or not do them. So what is next for you as you look out over the horizon? Ooh, good question. I'm going to focus on this head of diversity and inclusion role. I've designed the role at CultureAmp to only be a one-year rotation, which no one else seems to be doing. I honestly believe that this work needs to be done by more people, more perspective needs to be in the role Mm. um, in order. It's kind of an overlooked part of the solution, I think. So I'm doing this role for one year. I'm going to be so sad when I have to give it up, but I'll be so excited for the next person that takes on the role because it is a journey. After that, who knows? I'm, you know, I thought about living abroad. Well, I have lived abroad for a few months at a time. But, um, you know, while I'm young and don't have any obligations and while my parents are still healthy, I'm still healthy, why not try living abroad for a year or two? So that's kind of on my list. Oh, awesome. Where would you go? I don't know. To Australia with Culturamp? I've thought about it. So, you know, (laughs) Australia would be cool. London would be cool. Um, I do a little consulting on the side. I work for a digital marketing agency uh, in Bangkok. And they're like, oh, come over and work for us. (laughs) So. I don't think I would, I told him no, but ask me again in a year. So who knows? You know, there are a lot of my listeners that either live abroad already or who are expats. You know, I (laughs) I lived in Saudi Arabia for a long time and I I lived and worked in England and Spain also. I don't think I knew that about you. How long did you live in Saudi Arabia? Oh my God, I grew up there and then I worked as a marine biologist for about well, I worked for Aramco for six years. It was awesome. I, I mean, I absolutely support people moving abroad I, and living and working abroad. Yeah. But it's, it's good to get out and see how other people live and 
it's how a big world speak. out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's totally different. As you know, with that whirlwind tour you took, what's one thing that you know now that you wish you knew earlier? I think I mentioned this before, but you deserve to be like immensely happy. I thought you really had to work for it or um, I don't know, that it wasn't just like something that you deserve to have. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of my choices were like, well, I, you know, I have to put in the work. Um, you know, I got to put in a year's worth of work before I can be happy. And you, you can keep moving those goalposts out further and further and further um, if you're a really motivated person. But, um, you know, someone in my life taught me to just be in the moment and experience happiness um, ideally every day. I think it was the Dalai Lama said, uh, happiness is a choice. Mm, I like that. It's true. You can, you can be happy every day if you want. Yeah. So do you have a habit or a mantra that helps you to keep focused? <laughs> On happiness? Yes. Um, in the gay vernacular, it's called a woo girl. I'm a woo girl. Um, oh, woo. I woo all the time. Um, it doesn't matter <laughs> if I am by myself or if I'm in a crowd, um, as long as I'm having a happy moment or a good thought, I just throw up my fist and woo, woo. <laughs> I, do it, I do it every day. I do it in the shower sometimes. Um, and at the end of the day, if I haven't wooed at all, I know like, oh crap. Like, was I just too busy to like acknowledge how happy I am? Or was I really actually not happy all day? It's usually the former, usually like, I've just been like busy and I just haven't taken a chance to like, share my gratitude with with the world <laughs> uh, but some days i'm like oh man that really was a bum day like i didn't really have a woo moment so so then what do you do do you create one uh no just cognizant of it like uh, luckily right now for me i haven't had like two bad days in a row bad days are gonna happen man, the last few years of my life have been pretty good pretty darn good you've made them that way i love your energy <laughs> and i love what you bring so I know you read uh, Brene Brown's book. You said that it made such a tremendous impact on you. Can you tell us what, what that impact was? <laughs> I was actually really skeptical at first, even though everyone loves Brene Brown. Um, you know, one of her, one of her like sub chapters is have the courage to be vulnerable, which is one of Coltrane's values. So I, I knew I was supposed to like enjoy the book or whatever, and it, but it took me a while. I actually wasn't liking the first half of it. The vulnerability piece is actually something that I didn't quite align with right away. I think I still have a lot of like stoicism that I built into myself after years of <laughs> being a stoic. And it's not that stoicism and vulnerability are like ends of a spectrum, but that's kind of how I was perceiving it for the first uh, few chapters of like, I don't agree with this. I'm a stoic. I just can't be some like blubbering emotional vulnerable mess everywhere I go um, but that's really not her message her message is like acknowledge your feelings and like kind of take control of them and the more vulnerable you are it actually shows um, strength and like vulnerable leaders are stronger leaders vulnerable parents are better parents and as you explore your vulnerabilities and shame and all of these stereotypes that that people have based on what groups you belong to, you can get over them. So the vulnerability is really with yourself then? 
Yeah. And then it's not that you're trying to like stop it or hide it or prevent it. It's, I mean, maybe you do want to do those things, but like the first step is acknowledging it and be okay with it and then exploring why you're feeling that way. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Well, I've learned a lot from you already. I hadn't really thought about the millennials who went through college, who graduated in 2009 or so during the recession. So I, I appreciate that perspective. I think it sheds a little more light, helps us to be a little bit more compassionate about, yeah. <laughs> about millennials <laughs> and asking for what they want. Yeah. And even, you know, even the Gen Z, which are starting to graduate college now, even though the economy is better, there are still people that are going to get lost uh, and not find their way. It happens to every generation, just yeah. happens to happen more so for the millennial generation. Yes, absolutely. So is there anything else you want to share with us before we wrap up? <laughs> it's been really good chatting with you, Cinder. Oh, it's really good talking <laughs> to you. Thank you so much. How can people reach you if they want to contact you? Yeah, so um, there's a few ways. On LinkedIn, you can find me. My name is Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N. Huang is my last name, H-U-A-N-G. You can also reach me um, via my business email, which is stephen at millennialhrdesign.com. I'll help you think about your millennial HR strategy. I mean, I'm building a website that's talking about... Um, how do we design HR for millennials? Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot of DNI research, um, summarized, um, packaged into little snackable bites. But the research is there to be downloaded as well. So um, that's kind of my side project and my side hustle. No, no Twitter, not into the Twitter thing. I'm not into Instagram or Snapchat, despite many people in my generation being really into those things. I'm much better connecting in person. So um, yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Stephen Huang, or email me at stephen at millennialhrdesign.com. Thank you so much. And I will also put your links, your bio, your picture, and the show notes on inspiredwisdom.us on the website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm Cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.